trains and boats and planes are passing by. They mean a trip to Paris or Rome for someone else, but not for me. The trains and the boats and planes took you away from me. A trip to Paris or Rome? Sure. But why not Marken? Would the trip be pleasurable? Well, we were counting on it. Marken is a tiny island 40 miles away from Amsterdam, where I had been when I was a child, with my parents, and had kept a magical memory of it. Since we were not far, I wanted to take my petit ami there for a one-day honeymoon. We drove to Volendam, where she insisted having us pictured in the ridiculous traditional Dutch outfit. I mean, we looked ridiculous, not the outfit. Then, having checked the ferry schedule for the island, we had time to sip a beer before the next one. That's when my petit ami pulled out of her purse. A little something I picked up in Amsterdam. Maybe I should back up for a moment and tell you about that. This was my first visit to the Netherlands. Imre had, as he said, been there before, but my own knowledge of the country was embarrassingly pretty much limited to a vague understanding of its colonial history, plus the stereotypes of its culture, including those outfits he mentioned, wooden shoes, and, of course, the open drug markets of modern-day Amsterdam. Not being much of a drug aficionado myself, I wasn't especially curious about the cannabis cafes. That's more Imre's territory. Though I confess that since meeting him, I have, on occasion, ventured into his terrain. There were two memorable experiments with lysergic acid, one in Normandy, the other in New York, both delightful. The first illuminated my immense love for Imre, culminating in what you might reductively call sexual ecstasy. The second also opened up my heart chakra, but that time it blossomed rather into a radiant feeling of self-love. So, when we'd been strolling through Amsterdam the day before, I'd paused with Imre before the window of a little tourist shop that had some interesting items on display. They looked to me like silly touristic souvenirs for relatively inexperienced people like me. Packets of seemingly innocuous pills, powders, and capsules with funny pictures and names of the products. One little packet, economically priced and labeled intriguingly, Trip E Happy Caps. A smiley face indicated the purported effects of the enclosed capsules. Surely they couldn't compare with lysergic acid, but I figured maybe they'd have some mild euphoric effect. I dragged Imre into the shop and asked for some. The friendly salesman popped them into a bag and smiled, saying, Don't take more than two at a time. I kept them in my purse and proposed that we pop a couple just before boarding the ferry to Marken. I remembered that as we'd walked out the door of that little tourist shop, the salesman had called out, Have a nice trip. He didn't know we were embarking the next day on a boat to the charming little hamlet of Marken, so... He was presumably talking about a trip of a different nature. So yes, we did actually take a boat and we sat on the upper deck. 
the sea what was we call in French une mer d'huile, meaning a flat surface of water with hardly any motion. Anyway, I'm not exactly the seasick kind of guy. I remember tough cruises where everyone was puking above the rail and I managed to hold on in spite of the roaming of the waves. So, why did I feel nauseous while peacefully floating on the sea of oil to Marken? I didn't know but the feeling was quite unpleasant and I was sort of in a hurry to set foot on solid ground. Except the ground was not really solid. Marken is a little bit of a doll's island. Small and tiny cottages, little creeks running through electric green meadows with a few cows and sheep gently grazing. Some of the locals were actually dressed up with these traditional outfits we had been disguised in for a photo. I took some pictures as we walked around, but this nasty nausea wouldn't leave me alone. On the contrary, it kept increasing. At one point, I dared to ask to my petit ami, how do you feel? Me? Well, to tell the truth, I was also a little queasy, though evidently not as much as Imre. We stepped into a quaint wooden shoemaker's shop and snapped some photos, but I noticed Imre was looking pretty green around the gills. He sat down on a wooden bench, a little hunched over. Things were getting worse. The nausea in my stomach had gone up to my brain, and the general feeling could be put in one word, bad. After centuries of drugs taking, of all kinds, including the most trippy ones, I never considered the possibility of a bad trip. Whatever the rocky situations, while watching so many people banging their heads on the wall and seeing monsters everywhere, I had always managed to keep my hands on the wheel. Could it be that, with those ridiculous pills bought in a souvenir shop, it would be my turn at last to experiment a bad trip? It seemed very much to be the case. Paranoia crept within me. I was convinced that everyone around could tell I was on drugs and that might mean trouble. We decided to sit at a terrace and have a bite that might pull me back together. Meanwhile, I was trying to act normal, which is precisely the main characteristic of someone feeling abnormal. When the menu came, I didn't know if I was reading it upside down, but it didn't make any sense. My petit ami ordered herself a burger and french fries. When the order came, that was the signal. My stomach went upside down, and at this point, I saw everyone staring at me with wild eyes and maybe ready to alert the local authorities. I had to move out and walk away. But this was easier to say than to do. My whole body had turned into a huge marshmallow, hardly able to stand straight. Leaving her burger untouched, my petit ami gave me the arm. I had vaguely noticed a big dumpster on the dock of the harbor, and that seemed a possible hideaway. 
Actually, I think I managed to eat about half of that hamburger. I didn't feel great, but I could see that Imre was significantly more impaired. After paying the check, I took him on my arm and walked him over to the dumpster on the pier, where he promptly curled up in fetal position, hidden from the locals who he was convinced were watching our shenanigans. The sun was very hot and the wind very strong. I was in the middle of huge waves of anxiety and from anxiety to anguish and from anguish to panic. Not talking about my stomach who had turned into an octopus. When will I get out of this nightmare? Make my way back to the boat, then find the car in Volendam, then drive back to Amsterdam. All of this seemed just impossible as I lay splashed in the meager shadow of the dumpster. Yes, that definitely was a bad trip. Once in a while though, there was a ray of hope. For a few seconds, I felt some rest and appeasement and thought, Phew, I'm getting out of this hell. But then came a bigger wave washing me away again and crawling snakes began to appear on the dock. I was checking my watch and trying to make sense of the needles. I had vaguely in mind that any drug's effects have their duration and that hopefully the world would be back to normal soon. When I say the world, I mean my little self, of course. And what about my petite amie? Very fortunately, she seemed quite okay, with her feet on the ground and her head on her shoulders. But suddenly, I noticed that her pupils were the size of one quarter each, which reminded me that she must be as stoned as I was. Still, she looked in a much better shape. It's true, I was pretty wobbly myself, but I realized that if we were going to get out of this, I'd better hold it together. Imre and I were already longtime fellow travelers, and on many of our adventures, particularly in Europe, it was he who took the lion's share of responsibility in the pragmatics of transportation, driving and getting us aboard those trains and boats and planes. Markin, tiny as it was, had a limited schedule of ferries in both directions. I figured I'd better make my way back to the main dock and inquire at the ticket booth about getting a boat back to the mainland. Imre, crumpled on the pier as he was, was clearly in no condition to accompany me on this reconnaissance mission, so I patted him on the back and whispered in his ear that I'd return in a minute or two with more information. I looked at her walking away and watched her silhouette shrinking and I murmured to her in the distance So long, my love. It's been nice knowing you. I was convinced I would never see her again. And this line of the song from Georges Brassens came back to me. Et je l'ai vue, toute petite, partir gaiement vers mon oubli. There was a paper schedule posted there saying that there were two options, one at 6.30, the other at 7. I tottered back to Imre, who groaned that we should take the last one, more time for him to recover. After a while, he managed to get on his feet and 
lurched around for a while, periodically trying to puke in discreet locations, but to no avail. Finally, a little before seven, we made it back to the departure dock, but as there was no boat in evidence, nor any other passengers, we got a little nervous. Since there were no hotels or other public lodging on the island of Marken, and it was starting to get a little chilly, catching the last boat to Volendam seemed particularly urgent. We stumbled our way back to the restaurant where we'd had that queasy half a meal and asked what was up. The waitress asked the cook and then gave us the disheartening news that since we were visiting off-season, the seven o'clock ferry wouldn't be operating today. They thought there might be one last ferry departing just at dusk. We spent a couple of hours crossing our fingers, shivering, staring at the pier, tending to Imre's dry heaves and wobbling around, trying to avoid the scrutiny of the tidy locals. Just as it was getting dark, miraculously, the boat appeared. The only other passengers were a small family who eyed us warily as Imre leaned, eyes closed with his tortured head on my shoulder, and I, thoroughly stoned, attempted to look normal, occasionally patting him on the shoulder. Finally, we disembarked in Volendam, but even when I'm not massively stoned, I have a hard time remembering where we left the car. In this case, on a tiny hidden street several blocks from the outbound ferry dock. Weirdly, despite his condition, Imre managed to navigate us back to our vehicle. He was clearly in no condition to drive, and I didn't even have a license, so it was obvious that we'd need to spend the night in the car. Yes. With some kind of a radar, I managed to find a car in one of those narrow streets where I had parked it. Oh man, what a relief. I figured I would sleep there until I felt able to drive back to Amsterdam, which was far from being the case yet. I comfortably leaned back on my seat, ready to pass out, when I saw a woman looking at me. A nice-looking old lady, but with a suspicious eye, so I thought, checking out our car and its passengers from her window. We were parked right in front of her house. What's terrible about paranoia is the total logic of it. If you want to have a Romanesque and exemplary version of the process, I strongly recommend reading the novel Inferno by August Strindberg. You actually enter the sick mind of the main character and can't get out of it. Also, I should add that the world we live in today is quite a favorable biotope for paranoia. Who's not checking whom? Cameras are everywhere. Everybody carries one on his phone. Others are stuck on top of every pole, every tree. At the moment I'm typing these words, the camera of my computer is facing me, perhaps filming me. My daughter Lucy, who's not specially paranoid, has stuck a piece of black scotch tape over hers. Already in 75, the stone had this line in their song, Fingerprint File. As some little jerk in the FBI keeping papers on me six feet high, it gets me down. Down, down, down. Anyway, I was suddenly convinced 
that the next step for this nice old lady would be to call the police. A French car with two bashed occupants inside was unusual enough, especially in this kindergarten of Volendam where nothing ever happened. I decided to move. But where to drive? And how? Every single light was diffracted in a million and I could hardly tell a green one from a red one. No way I could make it to Amsterdam. I spotted an area planted with trees, with hardly any houses around, and figured this is where I will have my golden slumber. But as soon as I had turned off the engine, I noticed that it was the place where the locals took out their dogs for a walk and an occasional pee. One of these guys pulled out his phone out of his pocket and there I went again. Oh, he's probably calling the police. So I restarted the car and began to drive nowhere again until we found some big factory spot with a huge parking lot obviously empty at night, where I figured we could crash at last. Not for long. Paranoia would not let go its grip. I freaked out again, thinking cameras would be set at every corner for suspect activities, and I could see in my imagination the nearby police station with two cops leaning over a screen and watching us. I restarted the engine before they could arrive, and drove aimlessly again, nervously exhausted, with the damn effects of those damn pills still kaleidoscoping my vision. I was about to surrender. Bad That's when my petit ami got into real action and actually managed to pull us out of what was becoming a total nightmare. Just as Imre had managed to summon some trickle of his usual capacities in finding the car and moving it around, I managed to find my own trickle. I reassured him that nobody was calling the cops on us searched on my phone for parking nearby, and found us an all-night lot where we could ditch our car. Imre shakily drove us there at a speed of about two miles an hour. Then I called us an Uber for the half-hour drive back to our hotel room in Amsterdam. Sitting in the back of the Uber, I felt transported from hell to heaven with no stop-by through the purgatory. The bad trip was over, and the good one started. The car seemed to be blown by a gentle breeze, and so was my mind. When we got back to the hotel, we literally crawled up the stairs to our room. It seemed miraculous that the key worked in the lock. The apotheosis of bliss was when I crashed on our bed in our hotel room. Actually, 
nice trippy vision started to float around, enough to put me in an abyssal sleep, which I thought I had deserved. But what about my petite amie? How come she was not exhausted as I was? Every time I opened one eye, I saw her rambling across the room in some form of hyperactivity. Actually, I have no recollection of rambling around the room. I do, however, remember visions of snakes and spiders. Anyway, when I woke up in the morning, she was deeply crashed by my side. Once we'd roused ourselves, we were a little haggard, but we somehow managed to check out and take another Uber back to our car where Imre was finally ready to take the wheel again. Looking back on the whole adventure in Marken, I actually feel sort of happy that I finally had a chance to experiment what so many of my friends have been through and I was vain enough to believe I couldn't fall into, i.e. a bad trip. It was also an ultimate lesson about this crazy mental process hanging above anybody's head, i.e. paranoia. 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 Our trip to Marken has been tough, certainly enough to earn us a day's rest, but in fact, the new day also promised to be a challenge. It was the day we were supposed to hit the road back to Normandy, but with a very special stop along the way. One of the rare countries in the world where Imre Lodbrog et sa petite amie had never had a gig happened to be mine, France. Today would be the exception. We were hired for a radio show in Tourcoing at the border of Belgium. Of course, shaky as we were, we considered skipping it. But like any respectable rock band in the world, Imre Lodbrog et sa petite amie have a strong professional conscience. So, the show happened, one of our strangest. That was part of a weird gig series that we'll be telling you about next time. Next time. Yeah. Time got stuck. Oh, life is such a thing.